This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Maybe a way to begin formally um, so that we're not sitting here in dead space is for me to talk a little about um, Zayer Lin. Uh, Brenda... Hillman and I met him when we were invited by the State Department to, on the heels of President Obama's visit, to go visit Myanmar uh, and to meet with poets and teachers of English. We went to the American Center, which has been there all during the years of the um, uh, uh, military government, and uh, called the James Baldwin Literary Center. Wonderful space that was had been, became partly a space for uh, in Yangon, formerly Rangoon, for artists and poets and writers to gather and talk. I don't I don't pretend to understand anything about how the politics of that has worked. But what what we met were a extraordinary group of of younger and older poets who've been writing um, in a situation of uh, extreme censorship for uh, a lot of years and who um, it was very interesting to talk to. I find myself choosing my words. This is being videotaped. Um, um, But there has been an opening, a serious opening, I think, and an exciting one in... in, uh, uh, in uh, Myanmar... Um, and one of the figures in it has been uh, our guest, Zaire Lin. And, and this book, of which I think there are copies there, is one of the exciting things to come out of it. It's the first translation in the 20th or 21st century, I think, of Burmese poetry into English. And this is Bones Will Crow, 15 Contemporary Burmese Poets. a very exciting book to hear different idioms and watching the world come alive in different ways. We got to know Zehar Lin a little bit because he's, he's, his English is wonderful uh, and and because of his interest in contemporary English language poetry. He's translated the poetry of John Ashbery, translated a lot of the younger experimental poets, postmodern experimental language poets in uh, American tradition. And he uh, is a person of enormous wit, quickness, intelligence. And there is online his version of a short history of 20th century Burmese poetry, if you want to take a look at it. I think if you um, uh, Google his name and Jacket 2, a literary magazine, you'll find this essay called Language-Oriented Poetry in Myanmar. Uh, And I'm not going to give you the whole of it, but it was in the 20th century that early on in in a movement called New Writing, which was a highly fixed formal poetry, but the first poetry in Burmese to be written in lines rather than in, in rhythmic strophes, I gather. Anyone here who knows more than I anybody is likely to know more than I do about <laughs> Burmese poetry. But this poetry uh, had a strict formal pattern. Every line was four syllables long, 
It was called 423 because the fourth word in the first line had to rhyme with the third word in the second line and with the second word in the third line. And that was the stanza form, a song form, old song form. And then it came, in, came into English. But the effort was to break with the old high tradition and write about ordinary subjects using this form. And that writing was the form modernism took in Burma in the first part of the century. And the, re- the reaction against it was a reaction of left-oriented poetry in the post-war. And like many other Asian countries... Um, Myanmar struggled with, on the one hand, the interest in European and American literary models and with the legacy of imperialism so that uh, a a patriotic, anti-colonialist poetry tended to want to stay very near traditional Burmese forms and poets who were inclined to work from the opening created by the interest in European and American forms of experimental writing were branded as decadent and bourgeois. So you got politically left, aesthetically conservative poetry and politically right, aesthetically daring poetry, and we are so welcome to have here Zaire. I'm very... Happy and honored to be here reading in Berkeley. Um, the other day when I uh, posted my message uh, to my poet friends in Burma that I'll be reading in UC Berkeley, within a few minutes I had 120 likes. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, um, they understand that I'm here on behalf of Burma, on behalf of uh, my fellow poets. So I'm really proud to be here. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm going to... Be- read uh, some of my poems from this anthology, Bones Le Crow. Um, and I'm proud to say that this is the very first anthology of contemporary Burmese poetry in the whole world. And it took like uh, four years to have this in book form uh, because of the problems in uh, translation process and the editorial process. And uh, it came out in the UK last year uh, in conjunction with the Parnassus International Poetry Festival. And then um, the American edition came out a few months back with um, Pen Writers Festival in New York. Um, and um, so this book is uh, rather significant. I'm sure you can find it in the library here, okay, in Doe Library. Yeah. Um, um, so most of these po- poems are a bit outdated. You know, uh, A lot of them were published sometime in 2003, I think, um, But then um, you can get, um, you might get a taste of the kind of poetry that is called contemporary, which is different from the kippo. And um, you must understand that we were writing this new kind of poetry under pressure of the censorship, uh, which lasted for 48 years and two weeks. So um, when we were writing these poems, these new contemporary poems, we called them contemporary because we wanted to... um, um, separate ourselves from this mainstream, um, dominant, this lyric form, so-called the modern po- poems, and which were very much lyric. You know, it was the eye-based, and it was very expressionist, very ex- expressivist, and they were not. Um, they did not see the language aspect. You know, 
they always felt that it was like, as a poet, I have the feeling, I express my feeling, what I express is a poem. And I kept asking them, what about the language aspect? Whatever you write, you have to use language. And they always said that, you know, what is more important is their feelings. Language comes secondary. And I said, no, language is first. Because um, you, you may have feelings, but as soon as you have any kind of feeling, it's just a feeling, just a sensation, which goes directly to your amygdala, to your brain, and your amygdala starts to, you know, uh, find out what's happening to you. And that is where language comes in. You cannot run away from language. And then when you write a poem, any kind of poem, you have to organize it. And that organization is being done through language by language. So I focus, I refocus the whole of uh, this um, um, Burmese poetry to a realization of the importance of language. And um, I, I learned that from, by reading uh, language poetry, uh, especially Charles Bernstein's uh, articles, uh, Bob Perelman. And, um, and because I translated a lot of um, um, these articles and interviews of language poetry into Burmese, a lot of Burmese poets call me a language poet. And I always say I'm not a language poet. I'm just a poet, not a language poet. Please don't label me in any way. Okay, so um, another thing is um, um, these poems that I wrote, they are very different in form from, from this lyric poem. They don't have this um, persona. They don't have the, the I. And um, they are rather, you know, um, um, not so you will not get the sense of, of, of having any emotions in it. You might feel it's just language. But then um, that was the way I had to try to get past the censorship. Okay? And then um, um, at that time, I was asked, I was summoned by the, um, the chief of the censor board, Major General Tinsui, and he asked me you know, to explain the things I was writing. And I just said, don't take them seriously. I'm not a professional writer. I'm not a professional poet. Sometimes I don't even know what I'm writing. See, so this, oh, this must be some prank by some, you know, some, some crazy guy. So I was able to get those poems uh, through the censorship. And, um, but right now, when I read those poems again, you know, they look very um, unsophisticated, you know, very sort of naive, um, and not much um, 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 real poetic work in them, which is what the younger generation now are doing. Their poems are much better, but then um, um, it's because, you know, I sort of opened the way for them. So on one side, there was this um, kippo or the modern movement based on the lyric, based on uh, the feelings of the poet, and based on this image or symbol. And I turned towards other kinds of forms, like the list form, the catalog form, and... Um, so the younger generation have now given up the lyric form, um, which I don't like, because in the hands of real good poets, the lyric form is very, very uh, effective, and it resonates with the, the feelings of uh, the common people under this uh, military regime um, 50 years back. So, so uh, without further ado, I'd like to read the first poem. It's called... My history is not mine. And um, what I did was I put the words of this poem into the mouth of a dead person. 
So because um, the words are a bit contentious, they're a bit, you know, um, a bit uh, dangerous to the government because the government always believed that they are the makers of history and people have to just follow. They always say, we make history and people must obey. And I didn't like it. A lot of us didn't like it. And, you know, uh, I believe that history is made by the people and not by the government. But then, as you know, it's always the victors who write history. So um, I wrote this, this poem, um, My History Is Not Mine. Okay? I'd like to read that in Burmese first. Yeah? Natamai ha natamai mahaupu. Natre biloda dago nga makoe mahuet yo yere. Natamai go yegera nga mahaupu. Luce yang ma sete yao nga go matibu. Turo yegera natamai go turo matibu. Amatea yang sazia nga ma bama mshibu. Champion zuzia, matantinzia, turo yegera mabe. Dabime ngamama mibu. Chau saray mshibu, augu mshibu, ajo mshibu, piyatao mshibu. Ngatamayngu ngayigera mahaupu. Turo yegera, turo pinyashindwe. Turo yegera, turo humandiyadwe. Turo yegera, shimongche dandayidwe. Edi tema, ngabhenesa pagetale. Ngatidwe ngamatigebu. ငါတေးချင်းကိုတူတို့ပဲရေးခဲ့ကြတယ်တေးချင်းအချင်းချင်းချမှာငါဟာအမိမဖော်လို ngatejingo,turobe,yejare,ngatejingo,turolede,yejare,yejare,yejare,yejare,yejare,yejare,yejare,yejare,yejare,yejare,yejare,yejare,yejare,yejare,yejare,yejare,yejare,yejare,yej
to have written even my own death. Amid debts and deader debts, I was almost debt untitled, a crippled debt. Even the debt wasn't genuine. Even in death, I was exiled. They did not fully write my supporting documents. Even in death, I did not have a residence permit. They have written my death. They have written my death in air. They have, they have, they have written my death in water. I read it again. My own history. Misspellings. Missed grammar. I don't even know how to pronounce the word vocabulary. They have written my history. Then they have airbrushed me from history. My history has just begun. I am going to write my own history. And that's the first poem. And the second one is called The Ways of the Beards. Uh, this is an example of, the, of a list poem. You know, all the, in, in each and every line, there is this one single word, beard. And that is the only cohesive link that is found throughout the whole poem. And so uh, I was asked again uh, what this poem meant. I said, you read it. It means what you think it means to you. I cannot interpret it for you. Okay. So, um, you know, at that time, um, there was no electricity. And, of course, uh, people were living in a lot of poverty up to now. And, but we were not allowed to write anything about poverty. We were not allowed to write anything about uh, frequent power cuts. So uh, I had to find ways to you know, record this event to sort of um, make this a kind of a poem of witness. Um, again, I'd read this in Burmese first. And you will hear this word repeated again and again. Beard. Marks ye mokse tema. Gaba kaya memya si lungja. The chang pare. Sarch ka. Mokse matada ha. Pitti mu badana wada asa de. Belebian de. Sit the motatang. Sit lo lighter. Helen ye mokse la. Gabiago shani de zagalong dwego. Mizi go shani de mokse. มุสัยหาสิพินิเดมีซีเยสิพีมิวเบมีซีเยตะไมมามุสัยหาสิชုံดูอมันเตยามาริลินเยมุสัยมากะบาจีมีซวยลองเกลูยามะวินดุยหาม
So it goes on and on with that word Moksi, 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 repeated again and again. Okay, this is now in English. The ways of the beards. There is a hair. The rhymeless of the world unite in Marx's beard. Not growing a beard is existentialism, says Sartre. Helen's beard that launched a thousand ships. Beards looking for a chin like words for a poem. Beard is the war-torn town of the chin in civil war. In the history of chin, beard is the defeated truth. The world burned down at Marilyn's beard. The mediocrities look elegant in media beards, honored with flexible beard awards. The beard of the capital, decorated with electric lamps. Oh, the beard of dreams beyond form. The beard of the desert whirling at the end of my vision, a small red mold on the beard of social realism. We have emerged from the raincoat of the famous blue beard, beard sobbing over my shoulder. This has happened. This has happened in Maria. This has happened in beard. The news of the beard ghost, harrowing, yet scientifically proven. The youthful beard, the powerful storm. Just take care of your beard. Language will take care of itself. Instead of writing poetry, why not just grow a beard? <laughs> hey, beards of the world, let's get out of the Lanugo. Into the scene of the beard on trial, many myths are said to be trafficked in. Probing at the word, the scar of the beard was found. Don't let the flag fall. Fight on until only your beard remains, say the Bansai t-shirts. Stop rest news. The beard has just called himself you. The spoke's beard has been shaved temporarily. His beard was also silenced. So goes the story. Post-beardism. And the history of histories scattered. The robbery of the three primary roots of the beard. A handbook to mental attitude analysis by Zen Beard. The mourning of the humming beards in the cage. The virtuous beards who are no saints. Sisyphus rolling up the untrimmable beard of the gods. This is my favorite this beard is my brand, she said. History will forgive my beard. To install electric power all over the country, to establish beard power all over the land. Go where you swine herd, you only love your beard. A beard is a beard, it's a rose, it's a beard, it's a rose, it's a beard. All of you belong to the beardless generation. And God is playing dice with a beard. <laughs> um, some of my friends have asked me what this beard signifies. I said, I don't know. I really don't know. I just made up a poem. I didn't try to say anything about beards. And I only have a goatee. I don't have a beard. 
Um, the next poem is called Slideshow. Um, again, it's in the form of a list with this um, um, phrase, next slide, repeated again and again and again. And uh, because it doesn't, it doesn't carry a coherent uh, story, it doesn't have a narrative, and um, there's no mention of any personal feelings. Um, this, poetry, this poem was, again, you know, um, it wasn't even, a lot of people didn't even want to call it a poem or poetry. But now, uh, this sort of, um, this form has become uh, a very common form in contemporary writing, especially by younger generation poets in their, in their 20s. I'll just read this in English. Slideshow. Life is back to normal. Next slide. In the West, it's a different story. Next slide. Shall we also discuss the issue of the privileged? Next slide. Impossible. I have said it many times. Next slide. Maria Xiao, Channel News Asia, Beijing. Next slide. Since I've decided to wear only trousers, not a single sarong has entered my head for ten years. Similarly, a poem. Next slide. By using traditional technology, we continue to produce successful shrimp pastes. Next slide. The body parts of the hostages have to be matched with their identity cards. Next slide. Shibboleths in lieu of heartbeats. Your call cannot be reached at the moment. What if no one comes when the great war is staged someday? Next slide. Since 13 and a half, I have made love to 10,000 women. I just wanted to connect with at least one of them. Next slide. Loathing plus fear plus fear and loathing. Next slide. The laughter I have learned masks those I have suppressed. Next slide. What's life? It's a sexually transmittable disease. Let's share it. Next slide. The lives that have been barely alive and gone. Next slide. Idiocy. Air. Air. Idiocy. No, no, life has to be entered from the other door. Next slide. The light that is left, just saying, just a moment. Next slide. We all live in a yellow submarine, a yellow submarine, a yellow submarine. Next slide. To fly through the invisible fence. Next slide. The issue is as simple as that, I reckon. Those who have existed, spoken, and written before me were all inspiring and respectable. They were real scholars and genuinely learned men and women. I assume that you, gentlemen and gentlewomen, are listening to me, standing and speaking in front of you in a similarly courteous way you would to a madman speaking. Thank you so very much for putting up with, forgiving, watching, and looking at the shadow of a life 
that has been trying to come to terms with life in its own way, that has been struggling. Next slide. 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 So. Um, another poem is called "Sling Bag." You know, uh, in in our country, women always carry handbags, and men carry sling bags. They also call shan bags because they are made by one of the ethnic races in our country, the shans. And um, it's very common to for for men to carry those those sling bags. And um, because we were, you know, so censored that. There were things we were not allowed to write about, and we just had to swallow it and keep it down in here. So it was like we were we had destroyed some part of ourselves, and uh, I wanted to write about that. Sling bag. Wherever he goes, in his sling bag, he carries his severed leg. If he has to shake hands. He takes his severed leg out from the bag, touches it on the other person's hand, and he says, "Nice to meet you." He must have gone through a lot of suffering with that severed leg in his bag, though he still has two legs intact. When he needs reassurance, he'll insert his right hand, like a dead hand. Into the bag slung on his right shoulder, to feel the sinews and the greasy slime of the severed leg. That's how he recharges himself. That's how his pride is uplifted, his self-confidence restored. The severed leg serves as his pillow when he sleeps. The severed leg is placed on the dining table when he eats. Is he married? Let's say he is. When he makes love to his wife, the severed leg welds their bodies together. Only then does he feel the hit. He says, "The severed leg is his life, his past, his present, and his future." He says, "It's truth." He says, "It's honesty." He says, "It's just him." Says someone else. Someone who claims to be a childhood friend, he too always carries a sling bag. Um, the last poem I'm going to read is um, after reading a poem by this famous Greek poet Constantine Kavafi. I wanted to write a poem like that. And so, um, so I wrote this down, and I think um, somehow it reflects the situation in the world today: economic downturn and this uh, current um, federal government shutdown. And um, when I heard that, I was so surprised because um, only such a thing can happen to America, and that's what makes America so great. <laughs> The title is "Not So Oblivious to the Surroundings." 
after Constantine Cavafy, 1863-1933. Can't we ever depart from this city, Cavafy? You were right. Whichever city I visit, I'm back in the same city. Even if I were in a foreign city I've never been to, on foreign roads I've never taken, I would see the same road, the same buildings, the same dead traffic lights, the same potholes, the same vehicles, the same envies, the same ignorance, the same sounds, the same battles, the same ways of life, the same wealth, the same huge billboards, the same... Between cars going to and fro, I see you crossing the street towards me, ancient mariner, just off Odysseus' ship, after the long voyage and the long war, smelling of the sea, the blood of heroes, sex, myth, mixed with all that, this city, and let me say it, poetry. Atop that mountain is my white pagoda, and the sounds of small bells attached. Here, on this mountain, is your, what do you call it? Temple? The great hall where you worship your gods. Delphi on Mount Parnassus says, Know thyself. I have not known myself for a long time now, Kavafi. In the daily confusion of living and struggling, I too roll and reel. Here, they are laying down the foundations of what you Athenians started, Demoskratia, the new gods with their data, their feelings and emotions, their meta-narratives, and the truth that issues forth from the barrel of fixed heavy artillery. My whole life has been a longing for Socrates' hemlock. Old issues have become new issues, can't I escape from this city, Gavafi? International debt now strangles the Greeks. Senior citizens with pension cuts. Civil servants with salary cuts. Workers made redundant due to recession. Riots on the streets. Security forces in the same boat with the rioters. Bulletproof gear. Dark shades. Whistles. Shields. Truncheons. Tear gas. Versus anger. Sorrow. Escape from suffering. Fellow sufferers, those brainwashed by power, and others crushed under walls of power. Modern multinational gods in skyscraper penthouses look down on the commotion below with glasses in their hands. People, like tiny particles, coming together in a rush, breaking up helter-skelter, regrouping in clusters, Clouds of smoke cover up the scene and then slowly disperse, as if it were ritual. And the gods watch this, their conversations intact. On top of Olympus, Zeus and his compatriots, down below, tiny Sisyphuses. Zeus threatening to hurl his thunderbolt of law and order. Arab spring in the world, culture clash, nationalism, progress. Whose benefit? Wherever I go, I'm back in the same place. As you said, even if you die, you will die in this place. 
That was in 1932. It's 2012 now, Kavafi, and the world is going to end 21st December 2012. We already have Hitler, Gaddafi, Bertolt Brecht, Yanis Ritsos, and Tiananmen Square. We meet them again here in this city, in the streets of the base and the superstructure, on the beaches of structuralism and post-structuralism. At the horizon of the sea of interpretations, as I stand knee deep in the crashing waves, I know I am back in the city centre. Battleships gleaming in the port load fresh sacrificial offerings for war's banquets, chemical weapons, cluster bombs, touch button gadgets, advancements, concealments, abuse of power, and resultant destructions. New expectations from a city-state to new states, cities imposing religious teachings, conclusions, continuations, energizing speeches, victory gongs, blood brothers, ever more manipulated are people, masses, citizens. This city is winding up my invisible spring again, Kavafi. Troy is calling out to me again. I hear the neighs of the inescapable Trojan horse. Is this the only city left in the whole global village, Kavafi? Thank you very much. Now, um, if you have any questions about uh, contemporary Burmese poetry or my poems, um, I'll be happy to answer them. Uh, the last one that I read. Yes, I, um, at that time I was watching these uh, scenes in Greece on TV, and um, I felt very sad, especially these old people on the streets and, you know, how they were treated by the uh, security forces. And I felt um, a kinship with them. And, um, um, and, that, and I felt that this... Uh, economic downturn is going to hurt my country sooner or later. And, um, and then having gone through that kind of uh, violent clampdown in our own country, um, it, uh, uh, it made me want to write something about it, you know, without um, being too documentary. But then I think it came out a lot like a documentary style, but I just couldn't help it. And... Um, um, I used a lot of uh, language that I found from the newspapers, you know, which were reporting on this issue. So I, I wanted to stay away from my own feelings and, uh, and use that found language instead to, to uh, create or to make this poem. Um, but um, this poem has never been published because I didn't want to... Um, I didn't want to have the... the censorship people, you know, read through it and, you know, underline it in red and ask me questions because I felt that uh, the, the theme of this poem was more valuable than, than, than those people, you know, trying to destroy my poem. So I didn't have it published. Yeah. Um, although I do both um, translation from Burmese to English and English to Burmese, uh, the poems that I read just now were translated by Coco Tet, and uh, Sling Bag was translated by Vicky Bowman, who was once the British ambassador in Burma. 
And, um, but in terms of translation, uh, I've done a lot from the English to Burmese, uh, including um, Ashbury, Sylvia Plath, uh, Charles Bernstein, Bob Perelman, uh, and also um, poems by Miloš um, Zimborska. In terms of translation, when you know, I what I do is I read it again and again and um, try to um, catch the flow and the underlying um, um, ideas or feelings, and I try to talk about that to myself in Burmese. If I succeed, I translate it. If I don't, I just leave it as it is. Because um, um, my own personal feeling is that a poem is better left untranslated than, you know, um, defaced by bad translation. So um, a lot of very, very good poems in English still haven't been translated. Uh, From Burmese to English, what I find is that, you know, um, when I compare a, a Burmese translation English with, uh, with international poetry, I always, find, I always find that the Burmese poems translated in English are very... Um, they, they lack the, the, the sophisticatedness, they lack the complexity of international poems. And um, that is where I realize how um, detrimental this, uh, the, the, the military regime has been on our world of poetry, on our world of literature. And as you know, we use language. We are workers in language and workers of language. And when a lot of um, um, words are not allowed to be used in poetry, what happened was we censored ourselves. And, you know, um, um, when, we, when we wrote poems, it was like reproducing the same things again and again. And since we were not exposed to the international poetry at large, we had internet only about uh, five or six years ago. So we were not familiar with the things happening in the world. We were not familiar with the, the new uh, um, developments in poetry. So, so the Burmese poems were very much, you know, childish compared to international poems. And that was uh, what I discovered when I translated from Burmese to English. And a lot of um, my Burmese friends wanted me to translate their poems into English because they felt that, you know, the only exposure that they could get was uh, by having their, their, their poems in English. And I said, that's not true. Just because you translate your poem into English doesn't become a poem in uh, international poetry. So um, uh, that is another issue that has touched me deeply. Uh, I want to question what world poetry means what world literature means, what does global literature mean, what does international literature mean. Because um, coming from um, a very undeveloped country in all kinds of ways, I feel that uh, Burmese poetry is very, very much minor literature, less than minor, because minor is very relative. Um, for example, Lithuanian poetry would be considered minor compared with uh, British or American poetry. But when you compare Lithuanian poetry with Burmese poetry, Burmese becomes minor again. So more minor than 
than Lithuanian. So I would call Burmese poetry the minor rest literature <laughs> in the world. So, but um, but the, now that we have this uh, internet and uh, younger generation poets who are conversant in English, they are in touch with um, people like Nada Gordon, uh, the Flavis, uh, the post Flav, and um, they are also, you know, um, they are reading those, those, those new forms and they are trying to replicate them in Burmese. So in that way, maybe in two, three, four years' time, uh, Myanmar poetry can become more sophisticated. But then again, there's a danger that it might be not Burmese poetry, but imitation of laugh in Burmese language. So um, I think, uh, as in all countries, the uh, uh, problem of poetry is so, so complex. Yeah, Did you say something about yeah. You're, you're right. Um, that's, maybe that's, that's why uh, Robert Frost said poetry is what's, in, what's lost in translation. Um, other things that are lost in translation include this pun, using the same word with different meanings, and um, also the cultural aspect of the, of the poem, which is not carried through in the, in the, in the translated poem. And um, uh, when, when I translate Burmese poems into English, especially my uh, friends' poems, what I have to do is, you know, I have to sit down together with them and I say, okay, um, I'm going to translate your line in this way. You can look it up in the dictionary. I want to choose this word because this word has certain uh, connotations that are not found in the, in, the, in the other words, in the other synonyms. And I want to use this word because it has nuances of certain significant aspects. So I have to explain it to the, po the poet. And if uh, he or she agrees, then I use it. Because um, 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 it's, I think... Um, I was afraid of doing a disservice to my uh, fellow poet friends because I was afraid that I might, you know, mistranslate their lines, their words. So uh, when I translate from Burmese to English, I do it together with the poet himself or herself. But when I translate from English to Burmese, again, that's a problem because um, um, especially when the words have um, so many different meanings, um, I remember once I translated one of Ashbury's, John Ashbury's poems, and what I did was, you know, um, I used slashes for just, for just one English word. There were like four or five Burmese, trans, Burmese translations. So I used all those Burmese translations, all those words between slashes. And so the whole poem was like that, between slashes, and a lot of people liked it. They said, firstly, it gave them the freedom to choose the word that they like. But then in my mind, I knew, now that's a bad thing, I shouldn't do that. <laughs> but then, um, um, well, um, for some people, um, I think they prefer to, you know, pick and choose the word that they like. Or even, you know, um, first reading, you will choose one word, second reading, you might choose another word. So it gave them some kind of a freedom. But um, as a translator, um, I don't think I should do that. But as someone who wants the, the readers to know something about the difficulty of translation and to um, read something about Ashbury, so I had to resort to that. But um, like I said, they liked it. But I wouldn't do that again. <laughs> um, although, 
Although Burma or Myanmar is between India and China, um, the language is more Tibeto, Tibeto-Burman. It's neither uh, Indian or Chinese. Um, and it is unique because to the south of Burma, there's Thailand, and Thai language is, is, is quite different from the Burmese language. And um, what a lot of um, non-Burmese foreigners, uh, when, they, when they learn Burmese, the first thing they... The first difficulty they come across is in the tones, because we have several tones, like, um, 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 for example, let's say, me, me, me. And they cannot, foreigners can never pronounce those tones, like, mm, 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 they can't do that. Um, um, there's a difference in meaning, because of the difference in tone, between two words like, mount, mount, and mount. You know, with that high, high pitch, mao means drive. With the medium pitch, mao, it means uh, um, a term of endearment, like, you know, like uh, honey or something like that. So this, this Australian student of mine, she was going home by taxi, and the next day she said something strange happened. Uh, she was telling the driver to drive, but he kept looking at her with a leery kind of smile. And so I said, what did you go and say to the driver? He said, and she said, I told, I told him to mau, mau. I said, mau, mau means love, dear, honey. <laughs> when you should say mau, mau. See, so um, that's a, a, um, one of the meaning-bearing particles, that term, yeah. And um, going back to the censorship, when we were not allowed to use words like poverty, uh, um, military, the word military must never be used in poetry, in poems, um, we were not allowed to use uh, words like uh, red, red color, because red signified the Burmese Communist Party. And then uh, we were not allowed to use the word roses, because Do Aung San Suu Kyi, this Nobel laureate, she always wore roses in her hair. And we were not allowed to use the word mother. You cannot write poems about your mother, because that mother, the censorship takes that word mother as referring to Aung San Suu Kyi. So we couldn't write about our mother, um, then, uh, you know, we couldn't even use the word um, kiss in Burmese. You know, so instead of, uh, let's say, we want, if you want to write um, a line like, he kissed her passionately, you know, we had to translate it as, he showed his affection towards her in an ardent way. <laughs> so, and, you know, that, that destroys everything. So, um, no kissing in poetry. Yeah. And... Um, your, of course, your, uh, some of your body parts were not allowed to be expressed in, in, in poetry. Um, um, no sex in poetry. Um, and then you, you're not allowed to write about anything um, that has a um, religious, religious things. Like, you know, um, if you... Even if you write something about Buddhism, 85% of Burmese people are Buddhists, the government would censor it because it might, you know, um, unwittingly hurt other religions. So we couldn't write anything about religion, any religion. Um, we couldn't use the words like Marx. Uh, we couldn't use, but we could use, you could use uh, certain names like um, Pol Pot or Gaddafi or Saddam Hussein, because, um, you know, we would use uh, these names to write about 
um, corruption, about uh, violence against their own people, and the censorship allowed it because that's not Burmese. So, so when we wanted to write about the atro- atrocities of the Burmese government, the military government, we would use uh, Afghanistan or you know, uh, Iran as um, sort of allusions. Um, um, as for poets, including myself, you know, because we had to keep censoring ourselves all the time, um, we wanted to, to um, invent new words or coin new words by, sorry, by combining existing words, they were not allowed. Because um, any word that is not in the official dictionary is not considered a word. So as poets, we could not make up new words. And um, up to now, as I speak, the only form of uh, government um, permitted poem is, is this, this um, old traditional poem, the four-syllable poem. Um, it goes like this. That, has, you know, uh, that is very much linked by rhyme. Mo ye te ye te pui bui, kuin je a wee wee. Le sang te li chi dan shi, mo go ao ma ti. Ja ni de buen, piu de buen, te ne panan ti. So each line is linked by this rhyme. And only that kind of form is accepted as poetry by the government. So um, when the modern movement emerged in the late 70s and the early 80s, they did away with rhyme. So it was very much vast libra, uh, no rhyme. The government considered this a, um, as, didn't consider it as poetry up to now, whenever there is annual poetry contest in Myanmar, there is a clause saying no modern poetry. <laughs> up to now, 2013 up to now, we still cannot take part contest in that, in that, in that, a poetry competition, because uh, according to the government, anything that has no rhyme is not poetry. So since we have moved away from modern poetry, it becomes even worse. Like, for example, the, the poems that I read just now, they were not considered poetry, because no rhyme, no feelings of expression, no anything like that. So, um, so but uh, things have I think things have started to change within a few months because the censorship was abolished last year in August. And what happened was for the first six months or so, we just didn't know what to do. You know, after having lived through that censorship, it was like our second, second father, mother. It was like we were just orphans, you know. And um, at that time... Uh, we had this Irrawaddy Literature Festival in February, and one Australian editor, Jane Garman, interviewed me, and um, she asked me how I, how, how I found this, you know, this, uh, this freedom now, this lack of um, um, censorship. And I said, I don't know what to do. And that was the same sentiment with a lot of my uh, fellow poets, both uh, uh, men and women. We just didn't know what to do with that freedom. And one thing was we were very suspicious because we never, we never believe in whatever the government does. And we didn't, re- we didn't really think that the censorship was really abolished. And we thought, you know, maybe they're trying to uh, um, um, lie to us 
saying that it's bullish so that we will come up with our real feelings and talk against the government and, you know, we will find ourselves 20 years in jail. So that fear was still there. Another thing was, um, I think, um, the way our minds, our poetic minds were so programmed to, you know, uh, think of ways to elude the censorship. Now that there was no censorship, it was like, you know, we were used to walking in a crippled way. And when we were able to walk in our, on our two own feet, we just didn't know how to do it. So uh, that problem still exists. But luckily for the younger generation, uh, I call them the post-88 generation, because this revolution against the government uh, occurred in 1988. And, and these younger poets, they are now in their 20s, they, 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 they don't have any sense of history bearing down upon them. They feel free. You know, they feel that they don't need to care about history. They don't need to care about the country. Who cares about the government? They want to live as they please. So that generation is coming up with new forms of poetry, new, new kinds of uh, uh, creative language, especially, you know, um, joining Korean words with Burmese words because uh, Korean series are very popular in Burma. So something new is happening. And another thing is, uh, because of this um, um, access to the Internet, a new language has emerged. It's called Burglish, you know, Burmese and English. So the, the words are typed in English, but all of them are Burmese words. So, um, so some people are writing poems in Burglish, which only, you know, people, only we know. Uh, others, people who don't use the Internet, they just, don't, they just can't read it. They think it's English, in English letters, but actually that's Burmese. Okay. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.